If you would, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Very familiar passage of Scripture. About nine, nine or ten years ago, back in Ashland, I attempted a message from this portion of Scripture. It's my heart's desire that that uh, tape was destroyed and uh, never heard from again. I bit off more than I could chew, botched it entirely, and because I bit off more than I could chew, didn't make any of the points that I wanted to make, so I'm going to attempt to um, stick to the point that uh, I believe the Lord's laid on my heart this morning. And it's really just three words taken from the end of verse 9. O Zion that bring us good tidings, get thee up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid, and say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold your God. That's the title of the message. Scripture says, How shall they believe on him in whom they've not heard? It's my desire this morning to give you a description of God from his word so that maybe someone here Wouldn't it be wonderful if for the first time heard the description of who God is from his word and believed on him? Oh, that's my heart's prayer. And for those who have for many years believed that you'll hear a description of your God and believe again, believe him more fully, leave rejoicing this morning in God our Savior. Now the command that the preacher has been given here in this chapter is to comfort God's people. And a large part of our comfort is in beholding our God and the character of our God and who he is. Behold your God, the prophet says. He's been promised and pictured throughout the whole Old Testament. Now here he is, Emmanuel, God with us. This is God manifest in the flesh. Behold your God. Look to him and be saved. Behold your God. Look to him and be comforted. And here is the description of our God that he gives of himself. The description of the one who has come, the one to whom we look for salvation. And my first point is this. Behold your God. He's king to rule. In verse 10, he says, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Behold your God. He's king. He reigns in absolute sovereignty. Now, he'll get the job done. The king has come. His work is before him. He'll get the job done. He's king. His strong hand will subdue his people to himself. His strong hand will conquer every enemy. Now, he's the king. Behold your God. He's king. And because he's king, he has the power and the ability to satisfy God's law for his people. Behold your king. As king, he has the power to put away the sin of his people. Behold your king. He has the power to overcome Satan. Satan is the strong man armed who holds people in the the grip of his power. But one stronger has come. He's going to bind the strong man and cast him out. 
He's going to go to Calvary and crush the serpent's head. He's got the power to overcome Satan. And our king has the power to make his people holy and righteous. He alone has the power to save. So look to him. And he's come bringing salvation. He says his arm shall rule before him, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. He's come bringing salvation because he's going to come and do the work that the Father gave him to do. He accomplished it. Look over a few pages in Isaiah 40. He's come bringing salvation to his people. In Isaiah 46, verse 13. I bring near my righteousness. It's not going to be something that you have to search for. I bring it near. I bring near my righteousness. It should not be far off. And my salvation shall not tarry. I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. He's brought his salvation. He's brought it and placed it in his people. Behold your king. He comes to rule. Second, behold your God. He has the love to save his people. He has the love and the compassion of the great shepherd. Look at verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. And he shall gently lead those that are with young. He has the love and the compassion of the good shepherd. And it's a good thing. Sheep desperately need a shepherd. We are so much like sheep. We're defenseless, just like sheep. We're dumb. We wander off and get hopelessly lost. We're like sheep. We can't provide for ourselves. Somebody's got to feed us. Somebody's got to bring us to water. We can't do anything for ourselves. We can't provide for ourselves. And sheep so easily get tired, so tired they just cannot go on. They're just, oh, they're they're just like us. And the mighty hand of God, this mighty arm that destroys, just crushes every enemy is the same hand that gently feeds his sheep. The mighty hand of God, we'll see this in a minute, that holds all the seas and the oceans of the earth in the palm of his hand is the same mighty hand that graciously and tenderly picks up God's sheep and carries them. The arm of the Lord that is mighty enough to crush all opposition to him is the same arm that carries his sheep lovingly in his bosom. That's our great shepherd. And not one of those sheep will ever be lost. None of them. He will seek and he will save every one of his lost sinful sheep. He knows his sheep. He knows them. Now, that's more than just knowing their names, although he does. It's more than just knowing their name. He knows them. How does the shepherd, how does our Savior, the Lord of glory, how does he know so much about sheep? He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we're dust because he became a sheep too. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He became what we are in order to save us from our sin. Christ, the Passover lamb, is sacrificed for you. He knows our frame because he took on our frame and accomplished everything that God requires of us as our substitute, as our representative. 
And there is sweet rest and comfort to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. He has the compassion. This is not just a job to him. He's got to get these dumb sheep out to pasture. No. He's got the compassion and the love of the great shepherd of the sheep. Behold your God. Third, behold your God. He's great enough to save. Now, the work of salvation is a great work. I mean, it's a... Our God's equal to the task. He's great enough to save his people from their sin. Look at verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Behold your God. He's great enough to save. He holds all the seas, all the oceans of the earth in his fist. How much water can you hold in your fist? I mean, it's just a drop. I mean, it just it all runs out. How much can you hold in your fist? Just a drop. Those oceans seem infinite to us. And I've just been on one, you know. I, he holds all of them in the hollow of his hand. Just to, look at how much water you can hold in your hand. By comparison, that's how much greater God is than us. What's a drop to us? Is all the oceans of the world to God. We measure space in light years. You know, we send these rockets and spaceships, you know, out there. We measure in light years, you know, how far they can go and everything they can see. What we measure in light years, God measures in a span of his hands, about like that. That's how great he is. The dust of the earth, that's all the dirt and the rock and the dust, everything that's solid that comprises this globe, God measure, it's just a measure to him. He measures it in a pinch. What that word measure there is, it's a pinch. It's what you can hold between your two fingers and your thumb. It's just a pinch. You, know, you ladies that you know, really good cooks, they never measure anything. They just put a pinch of this in. The whole dust of the earth is just a pinch to God, just something so insignificant you hardly think about it. That's this earth to God. That's how great our God is. He measures this thing in a pinch. You reckon he's able to control what goes on in there? I think he does. That's how great he is. He is great enough to save his people from their sins. You're not going to be lost. You dwell in a pinch. He'll hold you. You'll not be lost. He's so great. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. They are counted as a small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. All the people of every nation on this earth, if you put them all together, you know what they're worth? A drop of a bucket. You know what the drop of a bucket is? When you got a bucket full of water and you turn it upside down, just completely upside down, and then you turn it back. We say it's empty, don't we? But there might be a drop down there. Is it worth getting? Can it do anything? Can it do any good to anybody anywhere? No. We say the bucket's empty. That's what we're worth. All of us put together the drop of a bucket that we call empty. And every son of Adam... If you put them all together, you know what that, I mean, Adam's made of dirt, of dust, right? If you put all that dust together, 
All every son of Adam has ever lived. You know what that amounts to? The small dust of the balance. You know what the small dust of the balance is? You know when they had those balances and they'd weigh things, you know, and this is how much you're going to pay for it. Well, you know, if you got a clot of dirt on there, you, you brush it off because it's going to affect the, the balance. The small dust of the balance is the dust that's so small, that's so insignificant, it doesn't change the balance. All of us put together don't move the balance. That's what we're worth, nothing. That's how insignificant we are compared to God. Look at verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Put us all together. It's not just that we don't move the scale. We're less than nothing. Less than zero. We're on the negative side of the ledger. The negative side of the... We're, we're net loss. It's not just that we're not zero. We're net loss. That man at his best state is altogether vanity, altogether net loss on the negative side of the ledger. Now, that's how insignificant all men put together are. Well, how insignificant am I alone? Now, get a hold of this. We're so insignificant, yet the Lord thinketh upon us. He's so great, he thinks upon insignificant specks of dust like we are. That's how great he is. God sent his son to die, to suffer and to die for insignificant specks of dust like you and me. Individual specks of dust that God sent his son to die for. We are so small, so powerless, so insignificant... And God is the opposite of everything we are. Everything. There is no problem too great for our God. There's no obstacle that will thwart his purpose. He's omnipotent. He has all power, all greatness. And the amazing truth is this, that God considers us the dust of the earth whom he set his love upon. That's how great he is. There's can't think of the right definition, but that's the true definition of greatness. That someone so great as God is can consider something so small and insignificant as we are. That's his greatness. Behold your God in his greatness. Fourth, behold your God. He's wise enough to save. He's wise enough. Look at verse 13 in our text, Isaiah 40. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? Who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No, God is all wisdom. He can't be taught anything. He, he can't be taught anything. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. He's wisdom personified that enables God to be both just and justifier. Now that took divine wisdom. You know, men think up all these ways, different ways to try to obtain salvation. And they're all ignorance. God is the only one who found the way to be just and justifier. God is wise enough to save sinners in a way that enables him to remain holy and still show mercy to sinners. God saves his people in a righteous way, doesn't he? 
in a way that reveals his righteousness. Well, God also saves his people in a wise way, a way that reveals his wisdom, reveals the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all in Christ. God saves that way, and he governs his creation with the same wisdom. Are we really going to give advice to God on how to do something? Has anybody but me ever been guilty of that? I mean, just, that's so embarrassing. Are we really going to give God advice on how to do something? But here's our comfort. God is so wise, he knows what we have need of before we ask. He knows better than we do. He's too wise to do wrong, too great to make a mistake, too wise to make a mistake. Behold your God, he's wise enough to save. And fifth, behold your God, he's sufficient to save. It's not just that he's wise enough, he knows how to do it, he's sufficient to save. Verse 16 says, Lebanon's not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. They're not sufficient by no one who is. Every human being who's ever lived, if you add them all together, they're not sufficient to add to God's glory. They're the small dust of the balance. They can't move the scale. And God doesn't need us to add to his glory. And all of us added together are not sufficient to satisfy God or to save ourselves. We can't do it. All the trees, not just of Lebanon, but all the trees of the earth, all the animals of the earth, if you started that big of a fire and had all those animals put together, they're not sufficient to sacrifice to God. That wouldn't be a sacrifice sufficient to his glory, and it certainly wouldn't be a, sac- a sacrifice sufficient to even put away one sin. Look over in Hebrews chapter 10. This is what Paul is telling the Hebrew believers. All those rivers and rivers and rivers of blood, the hundreds of thousands of carcasses of bulls and goats and calves, never put away a sin. In Hebrews 10 verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance, again made of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It's not possible, no matter how many of them you put together at one time, it's not possible that they could put away sin. So God sent a sacrifice sufficient to put away the sin of his people. He sent his son, just like Abraham of old prophesied, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. So God sent a sacrifice that would get the job done. Look at verse 5. Wherefore? When he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. There's been no satisfaction in those things. They've not been sufficient. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I come to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, Neither has pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. 
by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. His one sacrifice was sufficient to put away all the sin of all of his people. The Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient in every respect. So look to him. He's all we need. Look to him. And in him, nothing's like us. Those who are on the negative side of the ledger, we're made sufficient in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You're made complete in him. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5. Paul says, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. He's our sufficiency, and in him we are made sufficient, accepted in the beloved. Behold your God. He's sufficient to save. Sixth, behold your God. He's nothing like the idols of man's imagination. Look at verse 18 in our text. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to repair a graven image that should not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. This is God, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he also shall blow upon them. And they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Behold your God. He's nothing like these idols in man's imagination. An idol. Looks like what a man made it to look like, doesn't he? An idol is limited in what he looks like and what he can do. He's limited to a man's imagination because a man's got to make him. God is who he is. He's spirit. He's not limited beyond be, of, to a man's imagination. He's God. He's beyond our comprehension. He's God. An idol sits where you put it. And it can't be moved. Sometimes they even put silver chains on it so somebody can't steal it or don't fall over or something. He can't move. Where's God? He sits on the circle of the earth. He sits upon his throne. An idol, they can look pretty impressive sometimes, made of gold and silver and jewels and stuff. An idol is as rich as a prince wants to make it. Isn't it? Just depends how much gold and silver and jewels a prince wants to give. An idol is as rich as a prince wants to make it. God makes princes, puts them on the throne, and removes them from the throne. Where are all the great empires of history? They're gone. Where'd they go? God blew the breath of his nostrils of his breath became like a hurricane and blew them away like stubble and tumbleweed. 
blows through deserted streets. They're gone because God just breathed on them. He blew upon them and they withered. God rules. Unlike an idol, he rules in heaven above and earth beneath. And no idol can be compared to God. None of them can. There's none like God. There's none like him in holiness. There's none like him in power. There's none like him in mercy. None like him in truth and salvation. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I'll tell you why we don't go anywhere else. There's none to be compared to him. He's the only one to whom we can go to have life. And we cry unto men, Behold your God. You know why we get up into the high mountains? You know why we shout it out with our strength to behold your God? Because men by nature prefer idols. Robert Hawker said this. I thought this was good. Men prefer a dunghill God to the true living God. We just prefer a dunghill God. That's what our nature is. And the light of nature tells you better than to worship an idol. The light of nature tells you that. In verse 21, when Isaiah says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Have it not been told you from the beginning? What he's talking about there is the light of nature. The light of nature tells you better than to worship an idol. The light of nature tells you God is. Look over in Romans chapter 1. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us. In Romans 1. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of God, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What are the invisible things of God? How about his existence, his power, his wisdom, his might? These things are invisible, but they're clearly seen when you look at creation. The one who created all that is God. You see his wisdom. You see at least something of his wisdom. You see his power. You see the fact that he does exist in the light of nature. Creation tells you God is not a hunk of wood or a hunk of stone. Behold your God with awe and wonder. He's nothing like these idols. He's not limited to our imagination. We'll spend eternity and still not be able to comprehend him. You can comprehend an idol once you read a very short book. Eternity will not be enough to understand who God is. He's not like these idols. Seventh, back in our text, behold your God. He's the God of election. In verse 26, he's the God of election. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, and bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Now, when you first read that, it sounds like Isaiah is talking about the God of creation again, doesn't it? Sounds like that. He created the stars and put them all in their place, you know. The space that we think is so enormous, God just spread it up and hung it up like you do a curtain, you know. It was nothing to him. Sounds like he's talking about creation, putting those stars out there in their place, and there they stay. That's not really what he's talking about. 
He's talking about the God of election. If you look over in Genesis 15, I'll make good on this. Genesis 15. Verse 2. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born of my, my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This should not be thine heir, but he that should come forth out of thine own bowels should be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Thy seed shall be in number as those stars. Now, look over in Galatians chapter 3. That's who thy, Abraham, thy seed, shall be as the stars of heaven. In Galatians 3, verse 26. If we are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed. You're those stars. Then are you Abraham's seed and your heirs according to God's promise that Abraham's seed will be as the stars of the heaven. And God brings his elect out from all over the planet. He brings them out and he puts them in their place. And there they are, secure in his might, in his power. You know, those stars hang in space. It amazes me. I drive to work in the morning. It's dark. And on clear days, I look at those stars and just think, my goodness. I mean, it's just astounding to me. that There they are and all that distance away. And I don't know, I can't understand what they look like and everything that there is involved there. But boy, they're pretty, aren't they? I mean, you know, that's about the depth of what I can think about them. And there those stars are. It's not like a child's... Um, Science fair project, you know, they put the, the solar system and all those planets, so they got them hanging on a string or sticking on a pole or something. There's no strings. There's no poles. Those stars are hanging there on the word of God alone. There they stay. But now occasionally, and this is another one of the reasons, I'm, he's not talking about creation here in this verse because he says that um, not one of them faileth, Occasionally, one of those stars falls out of the sky. You see a shooting star. Well, again, I don't understand all that, but it's failed. It's gone. It comes out of it and wherever it goes. It's gone. It's not there anymore. That's not God's elect. None of God's elect will ever be a shooting star. There they stay. And His power, by His greatness. Now behold your God. He has all power. He has all love. He has all wisdom. He's the God of election. God chose his people. He put them in their place. Then why do we spend so much time worrying? I mean, we just worry so much. Why is that? He says in verse 27, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Why is it that I think, I spend so much time worrying, thinking this thing's out of control. I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't see anything but bad things that can possibly happen here. 
Does God too, got too much on his plate to help me in my time of trial? Does God, does, does he not see what's going on? Is something distracted him? He doesn't see what's going on here. This is horrible. Has God gotten too tired to reach down and help me again? No. He fainteth not, neither is weary. Has God forgot me? No. There's no searching his understanding. He hadn't forgot me. God chose me. He put me in his son. You can rest assured of this. He's not forsaken his people. He's not for, we don't need to worry that our way is passed over from him. He knows exactly what's going on. Our way is his way that he's chosen for us. Behold your God. He'll never tire of saving his people. You cannot wear him out and make him cast you away. Look at verse 28. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There's no searching of his understanding. Now, verse 21, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? That seems to be talking to the unregenerate man. You know God from the light of nature. Verse 28 is speaking to the believer. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The unregenerate man, he's seen God from the light of nature. God's people see God by the light of the gospel. By the light of the gospel that you've heard preached, God makes himself known to his people through the preaching of the gospel. Have you not heard? Yes, you have. Oh, we've heard. And the believer has some understanding of who I am. And my pastor and I were talking a couple weeks ago. He, he said, we have some understanding of who we are. We do. But boy, it's just scratching the surface. If God let us see what we are, the blackness of our nature, the corruption of our nature, if he really let us see who we are, we'd be in a loony bin. We'd just, we would be, it would drive us insane. But we do have some understanding of who we are. We have some understanding of who God is. He's revealed himself to us in his word. We have some understanding of who he is. I have some understanding of what God's done for me and what he's done in me by his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I grant you, it's not much in comparison to who he is. But everything that I know about who God is makes me trust him. Everything I know about the Lord Jesus Christ makes me come to him and fully, completely, totally depend on him for everything I need. He just because of who he is. And he goes on, verse 29, and he says, He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Now look how our Savior deals with the weak and the faint. Those that don't have any ability to do anything good, those that don't have any ability to add to his glory, he doesn't kick them to the curb. No, he gives them strength. They don't have any strength, but he gives them strength. He gives them strength to believe. He gives them the power to become the sons of God. He gives them strength to continue in the faith. 
He gives them strength in trials. I've said this before. I'd go different places preaching. So if I'm, I don't remember what I said where, but if I'm repeating myself, you'll forgive me. We come to a trial and we look at it. It's more than I can bear. I can't do this. I can't. He gives strength to endure the trial. You're right, you can't. But he gives strength. He gives grace for the hour. It's his strength. It's not our strength. It's his strength. I think we face uncertainty and face the things of this life much more easily if we quit depending on our strength and would depend on his strength, his mighty power that worketh in us. This is the power of God working in us. This is what enabled Paul to say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. That inward man keeps his strength. The outward man doesn't, but the inward man does. And when we have strength, only when we trust in the Lord. That's why Paul said, I can glory in these infirmities. I can glory in these distresses. For when I'm weak, then am I strong. Because I'm trusting in His grace, which is sufficient for thee. When I'm made to trust fully in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm strong. He may put me on my back to do it, but then I'm strong. Only then. Now our text speaks of people who have the strength to run. And not be weary. I love that. I'd love to be able to do that. Not be weary. A person who's running indicates some health, doesn't it? Some strength, some energy. We went last night and we waited until it got dark. We walked around the park there in Ashlands, 1.2 miles if you walk all the way around it. And there's a light show there, you know. And we were walking this way. And this young girl was running the other way. So she passed us, you know, a couple times because we're walking. And I watched her. I mean, she was just going along light as a feather. She just, I thought, wow, that's the strength and energy, you know, of youth. That's what we're made in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just running and not weary because it's his strength. Running also indicates a sense of urgency. Now, there is a certain urgency to the believer's walk in this world. That's why the Lord told us, get up on the mountain and shout it with your strength. Shout it. Don't be afraid. And say unto God's people, behold your God. There's an urgency in this. A couple weeks ago, Joe Terrell was coming through Ashland. He preached for us, and we were talking later that evening and he made this statement. He said, the business of the church is to preach the gospel. If we don't, who will? There's an urgency to this matter, preaching the gospel. And everybody's not a preacher, but there's an urgency to hear the gospel. There's an urgency in us to believe the gospel. Today's the day of salvation. There's an urgency to believe. There's an urgency to follow Christ. There's an urgency for us to love our brethren, to do, to help our brethren, to show this love. There's an urgency to it because it's important. Well, then we run. 
We run with urgency. And you run best, I know this, when you're not carrying excess baggage. Get rid of every sin and every care, sin that does easily beset us. And run and wait on the Lord. Run and wait on the Lord. How can you run and wait at the same time? That's the paradox that's in every believer. We run and we wait on God. They wait on this God, the true and the living God. They wait on this God who will renew their strength so they can mount up with wings as eagles. They can run and not be weary. We wait and we run in the light that God gives us. We wait and we run in the direction that he points. And then we run with patience, the race that's set before us. Now, I'll tell you this. I don't know what it is that I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life. Janet and I were sitting in our kitchen, and she said, I wish the Lord just come here and sit at our kitchen table and tell us. I'd be glad to do it if he'd just tell us. He ain't going to do that. And I don't know what it is that I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life. But brethren, I know this. I know what I'm supposed to be doing this morning is preaching the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I promise you, I preach it with urgency. It's been urgent upon me this week to find God's message and prepare a message for God's glory and for your good. It's urgent. Believe it with the same urgency. Believe Christ. I told the folks this last week at home. As long as God gives me breath, I'm going to say, come to Christ with urgency. Come to him. In him you'll find life. And last about running. Running takes more energy and endurance than I have. Many of you know I have uh, in times past been a runner. And uh, this back surgery I've had is just, my leg is not respond. As if I have tried. I was telling Jeff yesterday, I've tried a little bit of running. The doctor said I could try some if I wanted. And it's, it's pretty comical. I mean, it's just, it's, it's slow. It's, it's, it's pitiful. I don't have it. I mean, it's just not in me anymore. And Joe, I thought of you. I bet it's been a while since you run around the block, hasn't it? It's just been a while. But in Christ... You run like a young man. Within him, you're full of vim and vigor because the strength comes from Christ. Not ourselves. It's in him. The outward man perishes, but the inward man runs, just runs like a young man. Runs like Jim runs, like a young man, just with strength and vim and vigor. Runs through the mud and the ice water, all that stuff you run. That's what this is talking about. That's how we run in Christ. So behold your God. Our comfort is in who he is, who our Savior is. We're secure in his rule as our king. We're secure in his eternal love as our great shepherd. We're secure in his infinite might. We're secure in his wisdom. He does all things well. We're secure in his sufficient sacrifice to put away the sin of his people. We're secure in his person, in his character. We are secure in 
in his electing love. And behold your God. We're secure in his immutability. He won't change. That's why he doesn't get tired and kick us to the curb. He changes not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. We're secure in his immutability. Behold your God. Come to him. Trust him. Rest in him. And it will be well with your soul. All right. Lord bless you. This glass is empty, isn't it? Anybody worried about that water just dripped on the carpet? It's insignificant. Scott Richardson got done preaching in Ashland one time. He took a big drink of water and he came back. Mike was getting ready to lead us singing. He said, that's what I'm talking about.